As the adventurers walk down the dark stairwell, they notice scrabbling sounds coming from perhaps within the walls themselves. And in the darkness, there's movement stirring in the bottom of the steps. You see forms slowly coming into focus, which are small worm-like creatures. And for many in your group, there's probably a bit of a revulsion because it reminds you of centipedes that writhe together and start flowing up the steps towards you. Welcome to Making a Monster, the bite-sized podcast where game designers show us their favorite monster and we discover how it works, why it works, and what it means. I'm Lucas Zellers. Monsters are often simply a matter of scale. Many of nature's most perfect predators are simply too small to be any threat to humans. And some of history's most famous monsters are those too big for what we perceive as their place in the natural order. Designer Joe Rosso showed his keen eye for how this works in the context of D&D with his aberrant insect harbinger, the Mukad. So Joe, your title has changed a couple of times since I've known you. My official title right now is Writing Coordinator for Ghostfire Games. That was effective as of, wow, end of March this year. Prior to that, I started doing freelance writing for a bunch of RPG folks, uh, I guess, I went full-time in July of that last year. Before that, I was just doing my own work on DMs Guild in addition to my uh, day job, so to speak. But uh, I'm I'm fully vested in the whole RPG space at this point. I think you and I were sort of in each other's orbit circa 2019. And I, I think back in December, we had talked about getting you on the podcast for the Dunwood Project. Dunwood is a forest in D&D's Forgotten Realms setting that feels a lot like Tolkien's Mirkwood or the balanced growth and decay of the green-black Witherbloom College of Magic in Magic the Gathering's Strixhaven University. In real-world terms, this would be an old-growth forest, a term coined in the 1940s to describe the later stages of stand development with truly massive trees, multiple canopy layers blocking the sun, and a forest floor covered in large, dead, woody material. These are forests that feel more like oceans, and the oldest of them sheltered the last vestiges of Ice Age megafauna like bush-antlered deer and dire wolves. In lore, Dunwood is a part of a region called the Great Dale. The first big effort that I did was um, the Great Dale Campaign Guide. It's a Forgotten Realms source book. It was sort of paying homage to a third edition production um, (laughs) that I really loved called... um, why the heck I can't remember the name of the production right now. Oh, the the Unapproachable East. I got a suggestion to reach out to some other folks and me building a little source guide um, expansion to bring things up to fifth edition over a period of two or three weeks exploded into 12 authors or 10 authors. I can't remember the number <laughs> I had. Um, and a uh, uh, hundred plus source book that, that I ended up producing um my first real effort that big it was it i really shouldn't have done it because it was it was way too <laughs> way too large but it was a fantastic uh learning experience for me so that was that was the first big one 
Joe's work on Dunwood and other projects over the past few years led him to become a contributor for the fifth edition setting, Grim Hollow. Grim Hollow is a grimdark sort of horror-based campaign that Ghostfire Games has produced. And I felt astoundedly, astoundingly, astoundingly lucky um, when Sean Merwin asked if I'd like to contribute a bunch of monsters to the to this monster book that they're creating for that setting. Uh, oh, so this is in progress right now. It it's in delivery actually. Yeah, I I did the actual writing for this last. Uh, what was it? Probably in the June June July time frame is when I when I was working on on these uh, Grim Hollow creatures. And I think the the products are actually showing up in people's doorsteps in the last month or so. So wow. I haven't got my hard copy yet, but I've, <laughs> I've, I've seen the seen the, the PDF, which is pretty fantastic. You've dropped a buzzword and I'm all about Uh-oh. breaking those apart and figuring out what that means. What does Grimdark mean to you, especially in the context of what Grim Hollow is trying to do and be? For me, Grimdark means... Uh, stories that fear and dread are a key component and the survival of the heroes is not necessarily guaranteed as opposed to uh, heroic fantasy where um, you're, you're dealing with giant threats and ultimately you expect the heroes to to survive in the end victoriously um in in a grim dark setting i, I don't think that's the assumption I, I think it's we hope that they'll get through whatever terrible onslaught that they're going through um but it's it, perilous might be the good the correct word to use for that um overwhelming bad stuff <laughs> is, is maybe the the simpler way yeah what I've heard from people who have played older editions is that they have somewhat of a more adversarial relationship between player and DM and mechanics and character than 5th edition does, such that 5th edition is kind of kinder to to player characters. It leans more into the heroic fantasy element of this. Does that jive with your experience? And do you think Grim Hollow might be a return to that sort of attitude from older editions? Possibly. That, that might be a nice way to look at it. I... I... I think the earlier editions, it was the the game was still being figured out by everybody, in, in my opinion. Um, where it, you, it was the first time you, you had these role playing games available to the public to purchase and and play with, and it was such a different or change to what um, everybody had experienced up to that point. I mean, I. I'd played Risk, I'd played all the typical board games. So to actually play a game that didn't have a board on it um, was a bit of a leap for for most folks. And I think whenever you go into something new, you you hold on to pieces of things that you understand. And in all those board games, it's usually a person versus a person. So I, I could see the default assumption being the the dungeon master against the players as here's your challenge i'm trying to defeat you and the the players okay we're gonna try to to overcome that so i I can see how a grim dark theme might echo some of that same setup um and yeah i agree in in the the more modern game of fifth edition the storytelling bit is much um greater piece of it where you're looking to see how can I get my group to play a fun and exciting story and get them through it and engaged. There's almost always combat involved, depending on your group, obviously, but um, 
it's that shared group experience. Whereas in the earlier days, I, I saw it as, yeah, we're going to try to get through this thing and hopefully the DM won't kill us. Um, <laughs> when we're talking about Grim Hollow, is there kind of a hook for the setting? Is there a thing that is peculiar to the way that this works? A thing that makes Grim Hollow what it is? It's very much a dark setting. The gods have somewhat disappeared because of a terrible that's gone on. So there's their surrogates have kind of tried to pick up the mantle, but um, overall the the world itself is in a, a terrible state where I think fear and just survival are a key aspect of the setting. They've got a lot of different uh, regions that explore certain areas. Like there's a, a vampire controlled area and a sort of rougher, savage, northern Viking-ish type region uh, along with others. But in general, the, the world itself is is a, a dreadful, scary place. Let's talk about one of the monsters that you've made. Okay, pronounce this for me if you can. The Mucad? Yeah, I in my head I pronounced it Mukad, but um, Cad sounds fantastic. Um, <laughs> well, we're going with authorial intent because you happen to be here. So, uh, well, clearly <laughs> it's Mukad. If you don't get it, you're you're uh... now. I've accepted that um, all the fantasy names and words that I've read for the last twenty or thirty years, the the way it sounds in my head is not the way most other people would pronounce it. Um, and so I'm quite happy for people to come up with their own interpretations. Do you know why that is? Is that just a quirk of the genre or? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's the genre. I don't know if it's my own background. Um, <laughs> I, I suspect it's probably a combination of both. Both my parents are Hungarian, actually. You'd think that with oh. the name Rosso is, is Italian, but um, my both folks are from there. And so I, when I write, often I, I'm trying to come up with a, a, a strange fantasy name and I'll, I'll think of a sort of a Hungarian term and I realize I can't actually translate the sound properly because there's certain vowels or consonants that don't translate into English terribly well. Um, so that's probably the same thing what happened with, with this name. That's fantastic. Well, yeah, I mean, I've seen many times people suggest using Google Translate to take a, a word from one language and shove it into the, to another. I kind of use my vague understanding of Hungarian to say, oh, well, how Hungarian language speakers that might read my work and go, oh, that's that's almost like dad say um, <laughs> that thing. And then I'll sort of twist the, the letters around. It's <laughs> the cheat that I do when I'm writing. <laughs> When Sean originally asked me to contribute monsters, one of the things he was hoping for was more urban-based creatures that would threaten players. So I was trying to think of creatures that could sort of scrabble away in the darkness of some large building, like somehow hidden in the walls, there's a there's a, these unnatural beasts that are, are scheming in the darkness, and you better not go down that dark place because uh, they'll decide to use you to to some nefarious end. I had in the house that I grew up with an unfinished basement. So like cold rock walls. And I think you've nailed it. Like that is the feeling that I get here of there are grubs in the walls. I mean, like this is D&D, &D, so these aren't just grubs. Of course not. Uh, <laughs> what makes this different? What is What makes a mukad what it is? 
One of the, I guess, the concepts for the setting is the Aether Kindred. It's this very Cthulhu-esque villain, godlike creature in the background that slumbers away um, and People dread the time that it'll awaken and come back and devastate the land again. Um, so I figured, well, just because the master god or whatever this giant beast entity is, is slumbering doesn't mean his foot soldiers aren't doing something currently. So I wanted to create a tier one challenge that would start to pull in some of that uh, I guess, Cthulhu-esque feel of a strange, unknown entity that could potentially overwhelm or, or hurt the the populace at large is kind of where I was coming from with it. What makes them good at filling that role? I think a tunneling aspect where they, they could hide through uh, the walls and, and uh, be hidden in sort of public um, structures per se. The attacks of these monsters are sort of psychically charged, where they're, they unleash bursts of energy that um, will stun or paralyze the victims that they're going to use. I think I had the larger one be somewhat more intelligent than you would expect for a, from a sort of centipede-like creature. Uh, yeah, intelligence 10. So just an average uh, yeah but that. still like this is a full-on sapient being <laughs> yes yeah and so that, that was the the idea to have this animalistic thing but smart enough that it would be able to stare you in the eyes so let's talk about why we had to make a suite of these things because one of the fundamental truths of dungeons and dragons and most role-playing games is that characters i.e heroes level up and monsters do not uh you just fight bigger and bigger monsters so this is uh it, it reads as though you have laid these out in the order of their life cycle is is that fair to say yeah i think so for me the life cycle wasn't they're either larva or they transform into mm -hmm. the whatever creature I, I was thinking of insects in terms of you know, how an ant colony might be managing their brood. They have eggs and then they become grubs and then the grubs eventually transform into the more adult form. When I was thinking about this, I thought, okay, I'll have these these larval grubs. Then the transformed versions of them with, uh, depending on their specialization, they would have different capabilities. One might be stronger than another. And, and then the big master progenitor that's actually creating all the little, little buglets um, uh -huh. would be the, the, the one that's toughest to take on. I, I wanted to make sure that all of them were sort of a, a tier one threat. I almost feel like there's not enough tier one threats that really can scare um, creatures parties. I wanted a whole suite. So if a, a DM created a, a set of adventures that they'd have enough of a toolbox that they could create, you know, a first encounter where, oh, what the heck are these little things? And then then slowly the, the adventurers would follow the, the clues and discover where the, the source of the infestation actually was. Yeah, this is a really classic storytelling structure that you have coded into this series of stat blocks. I mean, my favorite example is Bruce Lee's, I think it was Game of Death. He started <laughs> at the bottom of this tower and he fought his way up to the top. Only you've done it in reverse, that you start in the basement and then you work your way lower and lower to the terrible truth at the bottom. It's such a common trope that it's if you can set the pieces up for DMs to use, then it makes their job easier. As a game designer, that's 
that's what I'm trying to do is give all the tools to let someone at their own table make the game that they want. Um, and so if you have a lot of options, then you there's a bunch of different ways that you can can approach the game for your own table. Because every table's different. Somebody just wants to go head first at the big bad guy and let's don't worry about the lead up, whereas others love that slow uncovering of the truth and, and figuring out what the mystery is. So I wanted to make sure that you could play it however you wished. So anytime you say Cthulhu, I have to do another like buzzword thing wherein <laughs> I call it the Lovecraft protocol that even for his time, Lovecraft was a problematic person and the genre that he created has far exceeded his personal ideology in order to create something that I think people are are using to find a lot of truth and make some really interesting statements about the way the world does and should work. Was that part of your design scheme or did that just sort of happen when you created the Mukad? Or does this tell you anything about the way the world works when you work through it? Um, Cthulhu has a whole bunch of baggage left for it for sure, but it's it's a shorthand from a design perspective in that for me, it's it's this unknowable evil that um, can't be understood even if you try. And if you try, then it's likely going to cause you grief in the end and, and probably the demise of whoever is trying to understand whatever that is. Um, and I guess I wanted these beasties to be similar. They're this thing that you as humans or humanoids can never really fully understand. You just know that they have intentions that are associated with this evil monstrosity that's caused horror and havoc in the world already. So if you come across them, it's not terribly ambiguous in terms of, is this a humanoid with good intentions? This is a big nasty that has no moral compass that's going to challenge whether or not what you're doing is correct. And I mean, that's, that's the easy way to, how do I say this? Um, <laughs> I think there's a, a challenge, um, particularly in the modern game, where we're realizing that there's so many nasty, uh, nasty is the wrong word, but ill-advised approaches to how um, creatures and threats are presented in the game itself. Um, and sometimes you just want to play the game and not have to be in a moral quandary of, am I really presenting this correctly and so i wanted to make sure that the creature the threat you presented here is unquestionably something that you could uh, go up against um i don't know if the, i answered your question there no not. absolutely for me part of the magic of this show is grappling with some of those questions and figuring out like is it a monster really and who's the you know it's it's a very old kind of subversion to the point that subverting it is you know it's wrapping around back on itself but I have had a lot of people talk about, you know, the role of catharsis in this game and just being able to say very clearly, this is wrong and we're going to stop it. And the value that that has for a player experience, assuming that the Mukad have their way and nothing stops them. What happens? What happens? Uh, they will do whatever mystical scrabblings in the darkness that these unnatural beings do and help bring about the 
the Aether Kindred again, which is that slumbering, unknowable, evil beast that had previously destroyed their gods and created the terrible setting as it was. So it's almost like if you don't stop these guys, then the already grimdark setting might might get worse. (laughs) (laughs) Of these attacks or features or traits that you were particularly proud of that resonated with people who playtested this or, or other designers that you worked on it with? I like the thematic way that I've woven some of the bits in here because I was trying to replicate um, real world creatures a little bit where you've got insects that, oh, they've, uh, a spider has trapped uh, uh, some insect for it to devour. It it doesn't do it right away. It sort of paralyzes it and webs it in uh, some coating to to ingest at its leisure later on. So, I mean, I wanted that sort of disgusting kind of feel for these creatures as well, like something where it's using you to um, propagate itself and it doesn't care what suffering or whatever is going to happen to the creature that it's captured. So the progenitor has this etheric incubation um, uh, ability where it takes a paralyzed creature and wraps it in a cocoon and basically injects it with little bug worms that erupt somewhat later to to devour whoever the poor unfortunate um, beast is inside it kind of thing. So I kind of like that that it 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 replicates sort of things that actually happen in the small insect world that we have but kind of blown up to the the heroic challenges that that players are going to face yeah it goes from uh, a swarm of tiny creatures to the mukad progenitor a large aberration lawful evil interesting choice alignment t- has become a tricky subject since <laughs> the uh, so-called tosh apocalypse back in december of 21 so just out of curiosity did you have any conversations about alignment here or, or any sort of deliberate way of choosing what how to represent these guys that way um no i i don't i don't remember having any discussions on the design of related to the alignment bit for me it was um trying to describe the creature um in terms of how it functions and i i saw it very much as a group entity it's this this swarm of beasts so they're they're following the directions of the the big bad progenitor guy they're not following individual aims or or doing some choice that furthers their own direction it's the whatever the big beastie says is what the entire swarm infestation is trying to accomplish so that's kind of the lawful bit for me is that that ordered decision making the fact that there's someone at the top describing what's going on and the the followers doing that to their ability the evil bit is that hey they're they're not really caring what their actions do to others around them there is no um sort of moral compass for them they're just following this this evil plan to bring back their their aether kindred over overlord or whatever the the beast is fantastic yeah i'm always trying to get to the bottom of how useful that alignment chart is and this is a good example of that yeah, I think it's just it's it's a tool. Anything that you use in a D&D game, I would hope DMs 
feel comfortable in throwing out the window if they don't like it. So for me, it's shorthand to say, okay, how does this monster work and what are the, the intentions of it? I think the, the recent um, 5e sort of style design choices that they've made with newer things by saying usually, or I can't remember the actual words that they, they have in terms of the, the alignment um, perspective, um, is, is I think, helpful for some people that may, maybe are newer to the game. I think if, if you've played the game for a, a while, you realize um, uh, all, all rules are optional. Um, <laughs> everything's yeah, you just always a... had that permission. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I completely understand why WotC is kind of going down the, the path they are. Is it's how do you make the game as accessible as you can to, to new folks coming in? So you do that by giving him guidance if they they haven't had that before so i have no issue with the way that the the alignment's being presented thanks for listening to making a monster if you like what you've heard and you want to support the show please share it with the people you play games with i'm approaching 50 episodes covering monsters from all over the tabletop rpg map so there is something for everyone Your recommendation goes a long way to letting people trust me with their time and attention, and it's a great way to start great conversations about why we play the games we do and why they mean so much to us. You can also join the show's email subscriber list to get extra bonuses like the stat blocks for the Mukad family tree we discussed in this episode and other monsters featured on the show. The Mukad are a great addition to any campaign and a fascinating introduction to the Aether Kindred and the Grim Hollow campaign setting. Just go to scintilla.studio slash monster or follow the link in the description to get your copy of these monsters from Grim Hollow with art by Anastasia Grigorieva. She's done a fantastic job on, on illustrating these creatures. They look appropriately, horrendously disgusting. Um, they look awful, but I hate them. <laughs> and that is a high compliment. <laughs> How do I find Grim Hollow? That's a great question. And you'd think I would have prepared. Um, <laughs> so Ghostfire's website has a store on it where you're able to, they have for sale both the this monster grimoire and the, the campaign and player guides that sort of flesh out the world as well. If someone wants to get in touch with you specifically and what you do on web and who you are and how you think about things, how do they do that? Probably the best way to do that is follow me on Twitter. My handle is at underscore Joe underscore Rosso, R-A-S-O. <laughs> I have a, a, a blog that I'm horribly behind on. <laughs> For a while I was doing it once a month, but it's been a number of months since I've done it. That's schemingdmwordpress.com is the, the full. Sure. If you type the scheming DM, you, you probably find it. Um, but yeah, Twitter is probably the best way to, to get hold of my crazy thoughts. 